Hi and welcome to this special tie-in podcast. Great to be together again. This is our third episode and today we're going to talk about uh, employee voice or voice in general. We have again Jane. Welcome Jane. Hi, hi everyone. Really, really uh, excited to be here again having this conversation. Fantastic. And James. Hello everybody. Yes, I'm excited too. So hello. (laughs) <laughs> Great. Okay. So yeah, we're going to talk about voice today. And this is an area, Jane, that you've done a bit of research. So we're going to sort of let you lead us on this journey of voice. Um, so where do you want to start? Oh, uh, okay. So I thought very briefly, I'd explain uh, why I really wanted to talk about it. And then I want to start us off with a little bit of a de- definition of what employee voice might be talked about and why mm. it might be linked to this this wider topic of organizations and cults and cultish behavior. So One of the reasons that I really, really love talking about the topic of voice is that we see it everywhere in organizations. It's around us all the time. And whether we use our voices or whether we don't and what we choose to use them on fundamentally uh, shapes all the conversations in our organizations. And and as you know, uh, Stephen, James and I are really passionate about the power of conversation in organizations. So it seems like a really lovely place, but also Mm. because there's something about using or not using your voice that feels really important in this area. So I'm going to start with a definition. Um, So one of the definitions I've picked up is employee voice is often defined as giving people opportunities to express ideas, concerns, and perspectives with authenticity and without fear of social or workplace consequences. So what they're effectively saying is that in an organization, your employee voice is making sure that people have the opportunities to speak up and not be worried about what's going to happen and talk authentically and from a real place. So I guess my first question to you both is, how important do you think employee voice is and what do you think happens if it's not present? Yeah, shall I shall I kick off? Yeah, jump on, jump on. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's, I think it's a really good choice because uh, voice clearly is something that, uh, from a cult perspective or from somebody that researches cults, I can say that it absolutely is one of those areas that is uh, almost in the definition of a cult. Really, you know, if you're a cult member, you tend not to um say anything that is in opposition or your views are not necessarily valued um you, you're basically there to to do the bidding of the of the leader um so you might have things to say so long as they are things that the leader wants you to say so i think um in some respects it's the very antithesis of the sort of organization that we would talk about where you have opportunity to say what you want to say uh, regardless of uh, what you think the consequences might be? So yeah, all the th- all the good things that you talked about in that definition, uh, you could probably say are lacking in a in a cult or high control group. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's very very relevant, and it it has an effect on the individuals and um, on their sense of autonomy and their sense of uh, empowerment. Really, I, I scribbled down a few things as you were talking, um, both of you, and I just had a couple sort of reflections on it. I guess. In terms of what that means for organizations and individuals in organizations, which is the view I'm going to take, I think it probably comes down to kind of boringly context, right? And I would say it comes down to some extent, the the impact that this has to some extent on 
for types of organizations that we're speaking about, for types of tasks that are performed in those organizations, the type of interdependence in tasks within organizations, and probably the type of stasis or, or, or change within an organization. And I guess kind of what I'm getting at here is if we're in an organization where as individuals we've got static jobs with low independence, with repeated tasks, then probably in terms of the performance of those tasks, my guess is that maybe there's less of an impact of employee voice on the actual performance of tasks under those those constraints. That said, I think the experiences that we have would be very different, even under those constraints, whether or not we had voice and, and or, or not. Um, I think when you change those conditions, though, so if you change the type of organization or task or independence or or the changing nature of things, then I think having an employee voice, increasing that employee voice would increase performance as well as increasing experience, which I think it does under both of those different contexts. So those are kind of my initial sort of thoughts and reflections on it. But fundamentally, if you were to ask me, you know, to take off that thinking about others hat and think about myself, I would say, hey, let's let's have some of that voice because that would make me feel better and more valued and more connected and, and all of those types of things. So at a personal level, I certainly think that that, ability to to use my voice and, and to be authentic without fear of consequences, to speak up, to express myself, I'd say that would improve my experience and performance as an individual. Yeah. And that's, I guess, I guess what both of you said, that's why, that's one of the reasons I find this topic so interesting. And also because what you've both alluded to is actually linked to quite a lot of other psychological theories. Like, so James, you were talking about, it's going to make me feel better and stuff. And it's going to, we know when we talk about psychological needs and we talk about need for control and participation and communicate uh, uh, and relatedness, you know, all of these things can be stifled if we can't communicate effectively with the people around us. Um, I I wanted to share with you. So there's considered by some researchers to be two types of voice. There's promotive and prohibitive right? Fancy words, right? Promotive basically means speaking up with good ideas, positive changes, right? And lots of exciting things. Prohibitive is raising the alert, right? Is this, I'm, I'm massively oversimplifying, uh, so apologies to voice researchers. But effectively, one is about um, do you have space to talk up positively about new things and suggestions? And the other is do you have space to challenge and, and um be a little bit critical and also sound the alarm. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you because I keep flip-flopping about whether I think not having both of those things is a problem or whether it's just the prohibitive side that worries me particularly, right? So, um, and I'll explain just to give you a minute to gather your, both your thoughts. So from prohibitive voice, I definitely think there's a concern in organizations and anywhere else in our lives where we don't feel safe and happy and given space to go, hey, not sure this is going to work. Or, hey, do you really think you should be tied to that train track, et cetera, right? Whether that's in a family, you know, friendship, and you learn this pretty young, right? When you're in a friendship group and you're like, your friends are like, hey, we should totally go into the city and not tell anyone where we are. And you're like, hey, guys, actually, do I feel safe to say to you, no, I'm not doing that. And I don't think you should either. Versus promotive voice, which is, you know, does it really matter if in a group, in an organization, in a social or a faith-based group, wherever we are, does it matter if we don't have space to, you know, chirp up with, hey, do you know what we could do that would make this so much better as a trip? Or whether we can just be a passenger in that? And I know, James, you've, you've met, you always mention context. So I guess I wanted to challenge both of you to say, 
Do both matter or is it just the prohibitive stuff that really matters? Yeah, I, I think, and that's a really interesting question. So my first reaction to that is that in my with my work hat on, um, working in continuous improvement, for instance, which I do quite a lot, um, I would say that I really want to create a situation where people come up with ideas, feel that they can share those ideas. And so it's not just about... Um, you know, telling me when things are going wrong. I want them. I want them to identify ways they can improve things. Um, but I also want them to say if there's a problem. So I, I, I would say instinctively both. I don't have a, you know, an evidence base for that other than my own experience and my own uh, prejudices, I suppose. But I, I feel that I want both of those things. Um, I suppose from the other, uh, from thinking about a faith-based perspective, um you could probably categorize that further or or chop that up, chop that up further. So from a, if you're in a a group, a congregation or a, um, a a cult or even just a religious setting, I guess there is an expectation there that the, the leaders or the, the people, the spiritual leaders or however you want to define them are the ones that are telling you what the revelations are, if you like, from, a holy book or direct from God or whatever that 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 being is or however they want to frame that. So I think the congregations expect the leaders of those groups to be the, the revealers of truth, but there still might be opportunity, and I would probably argue should be opportunity, for those people to contribute to the admin side you know when are we going to meet together to do this when are we going to do that how are we going to do this and how are we going to do that so you, you i think there's probably some slight differences in a in a faith-based setting where um you you could still expect people to have voice and have say and also to be whistleblowers i mean this is actually one of the big areas of concern in high control groups where things happen and because of the nature of that group people feel unable to blow the whistle there's been some high profile cases around child sex abuse for instance and things like that that have not been reported because of that lack of feeling uh, that they can do that so yeah i think that they're, they're the the areas it, there's definitely a, a further chunking up of of those types of voice i think in in religious settings I think I, I would um, probably echo a lot of what you said there, Stephen. I, I wrote down the bureaucratic voice. That's what I wrote down when you were talking about yeah. admin and all of that. I think we need we need to be able to contribute to those things that sometimes people think are a bit boring, uh, you know, but that bureaucracy and that, that sort of management and the administration of how we work feels like a, a nice separate layer to this. Um, I, I'd echo a bit both for positive, uh, or that's an unfortunate word to use in this circumstance, isn't it? Both the um, promotative and the prohibitive voice, I, I would say, are important. I've got to say, like, when I am faced with those two, the one that I'm excited about is the promotative. Like, that's one I'm like, hey, let's do that. Let's make things better. Let's generate some excitement. And, and I think that's maybe a dispositional thing. Um, and and so, so for me, if I, I, if I didn't have the space as an individual to use that voice, I would find that a stifling experience. Whereas to some extent for me as an individual, if I didn't have a space to use for prohibitive, it would just be an occasional thing where I'd feel really grumpy. But overall, on a daily basis, I'd feel less worn down. And I'd probably say, oh, you know what, maybe somebody else can deal with that. But if, I, if I'm not allowed to express my positivity and enthusiasm in that promotative space, I would find that a constrictive experience. So, so I can definitely see both. But I wonder if there's a dispositional trend towards 
which areas are, are most important for people. I like to have a good moan, personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, isn't it? I do wonder if it's a dispositional thing, because James was saying yeah. that, and all I, I literally, I was watching you say, um, oh, I lean towards, and I was ready, already and excited for you to say, say the same one that was running through my head, and then you didn't. And then I was like, huh, how different are we? Yeah. Because I get, exci- I get excited, and I also... I, I keep thinking back for those listeners who um, have ever heard either of us talk about um, Hertzberg's theory or motivation from hygiene factors. I ca- I keep coming back I, yet again to Hertzberg uh, in so many different ways. And I do wonder how much prohibitive voice is something we have to have as a hygiene factor. Like if we don't have it, we don't feel like it's okay. Whereas promotive voice won't, it won't be the thing that breaks us, but it will be the thing that stops us from being excited and motivated. And I, I mean, that is a massive jump, but it just, it just strikes me as those are, those are the ways you would think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as uh, you were speaking initially, I didn't quite write it down, but in my mind was Hertzberg as well. And I was thinking about the exact same thing. Is that just a hygiene factor all that kind of stuff? But the other thing that makes me think that there's maybe something dispositional in it is that, to some extent, with a prohibitive, in in some ways, if I'm around a group of people that I trust or I have specialists around me, I'm kind of happy to delegate that. I'm kind of happy to have that sort of maybe delegate isn't the right word because that implies that I'm delegating, but I'm happy to have the responsibility and trust in others to do that prohibitive and speak up. I'm kind of okay to not have that be on me. Just I'd like to be able to do it, but it doesn't feel like something that often is part of my 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 need within an organization. Whereas for me, that promotative is something that I feel is is something that would be almost more of a need for me to be able to do that and to be able to to sort of challenge upwards. So I, I, I definitely get the Hertzbergy piece, but I think there's also something about who things sits with. So for me, I, I wouldn't want to just give that away to somebody else or, or not have a space in that conversation. See, now that's really interesting because what what strikes me in that is your favorite word, James, context. Um, <laughs> and doesn't it depend on who and what we're speaking up against? Because if something is affecting us directly the irony is people will probably listen to us less there's there's a real irony to that but if you're in a group and you're saying hey over here something's going wrong and it's affecting me people might be like well it's affecting you so of course you disproportionately value it which then makes me wonder do you think do you think it's the importance of being able to and indeed acting on speaking up for others and on behalf of others that matters or if everybody just was able and safe to speak up for themselves, would we not no longer need to advocate for other people in the organization? So I'm thinking about when, you know, bad things are happening, but they're not, potentially if they're not truly cataclysmic yet, but there's something bad happening, who's, whose job is it to speak up? Is it just the person it's affecting? Is it the person who sees it? Is it the leader to make sure they're hearing? Like, how do we, how do we figure out whose job it is to make sure that voice is there and is being used? I think there's there's two things that I just want to say uh, about that. Uh, one is it is that we'll perhaps come back to a bit later, but just want to flag it or put a pin in it now. Is that one of the things that we wanted to get out of of these discussions was you know how you might um, inadvertently even create a, a kind of cultic, slightly cultic environment within your workplace within your team. And it feels to me that there's something to say straight away here is that it could be seen as one of the big definitions or or, uh, comparisons between an unhealthy cultic organization or team 
and one that's much more healthy is how much voice people have. So if you think about cults and you think about all the examples of cults, you are seeing greatly reduced voice ability to both um, say what's wrong and to offer suggestions for how to make things better. That's just not the way cults work. They don't want you to do that. So if you're worried about that as a manager, as a leader, then there's an area to make sure that that we we get right, make sure people have a voice and that we're listening to that voice, both, both of those two types. Um, and I knew I was going to forget the second point I was going to make. <laughs> well, um, that first point was excellent, so I think that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think it was related more to your question. Um, Jane, remind, remind me again what, uh, what your point was. Whose job is it? So whose job is is it to speak and use their voice? That's it. So uh, in relation to that, I was going to say that, um, I mean, technically, I think we want the opportunity for everyone. But I think the other thing that I always bring into these discussions, including around cults, is, is the individual differences factor that also has a part to play. So not everyone wants the same amount of voice as each other. So, you know, I might be very vocal person who likes to come up with suggestions and we all know that person who's constantly coming up to us saying hey i've got an idea you know have you thought about this um and they love to do that and they want that opportunity um and obviously they need to see some um follow-up from that but they, they need that opportunity but then there's other people that that only rarely do um, they're very thoughtful maybe now and again they'll come up with an idea or there's always a person that is is first to complain um and others don't feel the need to do that so much. So I think everybody needs the opportunity and we need to think about how we best um, facilitate everybody's voice. It doesn't though mean that everybody has to have exactly the same amount to say because people are different. Yeah, I I, I think that's true. And I think some of that conversation that that we alluded to earlier, Jane, uh, and, uh, about you know where you were going with the the factor that you were most drawn to, and where I was going, maybe speak a little bit to that. I, I've got um, something else that's in my mind with this, and I kind of want to say that the accountability for me, particularly when it comes to prohibitive, almost sits with the people who know, and that sounds like a bit of a cop out, but there are areas where I have huge amounts of ignorance. Right. And I'm not the person really to speak up in this. It's, it's like I, I feel like I can't really do that in a meaningful way if I think about it from a technical perspective. But I would absolutely hope that the people who do have those technical abilities in that technical domain are able to speak up. And there's a really silly example about this. I, like something that's in my mind is fear of flying. I'm one of those people who I think I can get on an airplane and I don't need to know how it works, but I just kind of believe in technology and trust like pilots to do this, right? And I, I couldn't really speak up if I saw something on fire, I could speak up, right? But really, I'm, I'm not able to speak up in that place, but I'm very, I guess, maybe dispositionally willing to trust in, you know, technology and people within that environment with processes and controls to do that. Um, and I think that that there's something beneficial in that analogy about the professionals in that space who, who are able to do that, and I would trust them to do that. Whereas in a domain where I was more of a specialist, I would look to myself to speak up more does that make sense i think there's a, something proportional to knowledge and that i think that that actually brings another element of voice in uh jane i don't know i know you've got some some questions that you want to you want to bring in so we want to make sure we we get to those but i i um 
sometimes, and this might be encroaching upon one of those, I suppose, but but giving people the skills and the knowledge to be able to have a say. So yes, it's true that some people might have the technical skills and knowledge already, and they're the ones that we, we listen to. But there could also be a tendency for us to not to give people too much information, too much knowledge, because then they only start asking questions, you know, and uh, irritatingly have have opinions, um, which I'd rather them not, to be honest, you know. So that there could be that temptation for us to avoid complication by just, you know, leave your brains at the door. And I know that's a very, um, that's a very old-fashioned notion, but I fear that there still might be people um, that that uh, managers that, that think that way. I, I don't think it's old-fashioned. And I, 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 there's always a danger, as you two know, that I will draw comparisons to areas that have nothing to do with what we're meant to be talking about. <laughs> but I feel a little bit it's like when we think about politics and society and where we are at the moment with social media. I There are some people who say some non-illegal but pretty terrible things and things that I deeply disagree with. But I think when you rig the system to stifle that voice, I think it just makes it all worse, right? And I think mm. about um, political parties in the UK, for example, that I deeply disagree with, but that have not been able to get in Parliament, and therefore it becomes like it becomes like this thing that that is mm. you, these people don't have a voice, and therefore they should have a voice, and the very nature of them not having a voice. And then I think about industrial relations and unions and how important I think they are, but also where I've seen it become very, very difficult because the very nature of stifling that voice has caused other problems. And I think there's also um, sometimes a bit of a parental attitude towards mm. employees that I also have heard you talk about when you've talked about high control group and this idea that, you know, you don't need a voice because we've got it covered. And I Absolutely. think... James, you're absolutely right when it comes to um, sometimes I might, you know, you were saying sometimes, you know, if other people know this stuff, I might not feel the need. But I wonder how much uh, there's a sort of virtuous circle of educating a little bit of people so that they understand. So what's, I, I never remember the phrase, is it done in Kruger? You never know what you don't know, right? And I think there's that thing of you have to do a little bit of educate, a little bit of a voice so that you can challenge the voice and say, oh, no, no. Let me explain all the reasons that's not going to help us. And, and you know what? I'm going to jump straight back in because I think we're probably, to some extent, talking about different domains of areas to speak up within as well. So within that sort of mathematical, physics-based world, there does tend to be an answer. There does tend to be a right or wrong. There does tend to be a more of an absolute position which can be agreed as, um, you know, no, an empirically proven truth about these types of things. And I think in those instances, there is more of a role of um, technical experts to do and, and to, to lead in that speaking up. I think in some of those other areas where you've spoken about where it is a grayer area or more ambiguous in terms of having multiple paths or, or uh, more ambiguous with multiple destinations as well as different pathways to those, and it's a little bit more opinion-based, then I think there's a different role for voice in those. And I guess maybe we can broaden that out a little bit if we think about um, aspects of, of some of the cults that, that exist in, in workplace or other about what is a what is a, a factual you know and you know that, that really almost scientific 
truthful knowledge base versus what's more of an opinion. And there's some, some blurring in there, but I think it makes that interesting as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Shall I, shall I move us on to uh, one of our questions? Mm. I'll set the scene for everybody. I was doing some research around this episode and also around voice in general. I watched a TED talk by a really, really interesting lady called Megan Phelps Roper, who talked about her experience of leaving Westboro Baptist Church. And one of the things she talked about quite extensively was her experience of how the groups she was in experienced being human. Now, this sounds a long way from organizations, but actually um, what the research shows is that there's lots of relationships between employee voice and leader humility, right? Which suddenly starts to make you go, ah. So when she talks about her experience of leaving Westboro Baptist Church, the thing she says is, when I started connecting with people on Twitter and outside of my group, what I realized was that I had in common with them the belief that we're all humans and therefore we are all fallible. Whereas in the church, there was a belief that we are all humans and therefore we are lesser. We are lesser than the spiritual being and we are lesser than the leaders that guide us. And therefore it's our job to be just human, you know, just human, be along for the ride. And it struck me in that moment that the organizations where I have seen the most debate, the most discussion, the most use of voice, sometimes to the point where I've wanted to maybe <laughs> see less, quite humanly want to see less, but also recognize it was a good thing is where there has been this acknowledgement that we are all fallible, even the leaders, even the CEO, even the board. Everyone's fallible and the job of the organization is to find, f actively seek out those flaws and improve them. And it struck me that the, the, that the humility in all of us, it, I, feel like it, I, I feel like it's really critical to giving people, so just Stephen, you, you talked about giving people the space and the tools. I think you have to give them the conditions alongside that which you mentioned which is to make them realize we if we all share that we believe we're we're humble and fallible then surely we're creating a much better place where everyone go well well if we know we're all fallible a there's no harm to using my voice because you all accept i might be wrong but yeah. also you're telling me that you all might be wrong so i've got a reason to try and spot the problem and yeah. i just i guess i wanted to i wanted to ask your reflections on that that humility and that what what role you think it has and what happens when it's not there yeah i think that's that's a really important point actually in um in high control groups and and cults um what often happens part of the uh, the modus operandi is to make the members of the group the just the rank and file feel that they are useless sinners um good for nothing um and absolutely in need of the help that this group or the leader of the group or the god that they represent or whatever it is that they they are trying to sell and uh, that they are absolutely in need of this and that you know it could be a cult that's um, religious or even you know weight losing weight cult or something you know you're you're horrible you're disgusting you're useless you can't do it you've done it you've tried it so often and you can't do it so actually part of the the methodology for creating these coercive relationships is to make uh, the individuals feel useless and rubbish so that they are tied to the group. I mean, this happens in coercive relationships, of course, too, in, um, you know, all sorts of different settings. 
where the abusive partner is is making the other person feel useless and and uh, of, of no value so yeah i think that's that's absolutely right if if you're in an organization where you're meant made to feel that you are uh you don't know anything um you you have no skills that really you're you're just a nuisance and i think we've all worked for managers who give you that impression at times you know um maybe through what they say or, or the way they treat their staff um yeah that's that's a good way to avoid voice so you 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 suppress people's desire and confidence and create the conditions where people don't say anything because they don't literally don't think they've got anything to contribute because they're too stupid to know anything that's of value so yeah humility in terms of the leadership i think is really important that actually as a leader um you know i'm not better than my team um i happen to have some sets of responsibilities and maybe some experience and skills that give me that those responsibilities but um yeah um i also need to to listen to members of my team and i communicate that so that my team know that i'm going to um i'm going to reflect on that and maybe push it a little bit further um i think that humility is super helpful in being able to authentically step into a conversation where we want to hear from other people which is, i think is a lot of what this is about and and i think if you do it in a performative way it doesn't have the same impact. I think people can see through a performative aspect of humility. What I think is probably the case, though, is that we as individuals are dynamic and we grow based on our experience. And the longer we are in a position of some form of power, the more we create sort of social barriers between ourselves and powerful positions and those who are not. So I think, and I don't know, I would speculate that the genuine humility that we hold for many people diminishes the longer they are in power and the more they are in power. And I, I'd go to statements like, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And I think that our intentionality and our education helps with this. But my guess or, or my gut feeling is that we probably need to bring in procedural, regulatory, legislative type mechanisms to try and maintain humility within the positions of power that we can hold within society and within organizations. So if you think about, you know, the, the segregation of power in, say, the U.S. between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, part of that is designed, I believe, to limit power. And, and with that limiting of power, to force an, an equality to some extent of voice within a, a forum of discussion so that we can hold on to some humility, at least uh, maybe some parity in relation to the, the power of other voices that are in there. And I think that's why things like term limits are important i think within um executive roles within organizations as well as within political roles i think that's why things like mandatory appointment of non-executive directors i think all of that stuff is needed to stop an individual growing out you know bubbling out of the top of an organization Mm -hmm. in terms of their sense of importance and and with that with their sense of of humility so i think it's probably something that's within us that's hard to see and we've recently seen you know, negative impacts of people staying in power for too long. It just, it leads us to difficult places. I, I'd like to just sort of offer that up to both of you and see if you've got any reflections. I've got, I've got quite a lot of reflections and it's, um, we're going to drift into in a minute, one of my other questions, I think, because um, James, you know, I, I've worked quite a lot with um, CEOs of small, really small organizations 
And one of the things that I spend a disproportionate amount of my time talking to them about is for them to understand that as CEO, their experience of employee voice will be different and that people will be, uh, will provide voice differently and with different intentions to them. So practical example, um, CEO of a 65 person organization, um, was a senior leader, is now running the team that he used to be a member of, uh, expects all of his peers who he's worked alongside for 10 years to talk to him in exactly the same way and be honest and open. So judges their their input in the same way, right? Has not noticed they're not critiquing his opinions, views, choices as much and is slowly, I think, becoming conditioned to think he's right more often. And think he's not right more often. He's right no more or no less than he was before. In fact, probably less because he's doing a new job and he's he's making more decisions across a broader set of things that he's not getting right. But he's hearing less criticism. And I think there's something about deliberately and intentionally need to set out your humility. And I know, you know, Edmondson talks about it a lot in psych safety, but in order not just to help other people get involved, but also to keep yourself in check, that piece that, that James is talking about alongside those structural changes, those legal, those those regulatory systems, how do you yourself just have a word early doors and say, you know what, if, it, if I'm doing a new job and I'm noticing that people are giving me less criticism and it's a job that's stretching me further, maybe not assume that I'm just better at it. And I don't, I don't know how we go about that, but I definitely think that... Um, when we, I mean, Stephen, when we talked about this idea of drifting, right? Drifting into high control, drifting into mm. hierarchical organizations. I, I, I think that's one of the chances that things can happen, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying today's conversation because we're coming up with some really tangible things, I think, for us as managers and leaders to, to do here to avoid that drift. So one of the things is, yeah, let's, let's, um, notice when uh when when voice is is absent so that's something that we can actually actively start to do something about have some processes and systems around voice so that we actually make that happen it's one of the things that differentiates a cult from a a healthy organization um we've got this self-awareness that james is talking about that's um you know, forearmed is forewarned. Um, forewarned is forearmed. Um, in some respects, so just knowing that, acknowledging that. Um, I mean, I, I don't know whether people ever do these things, but in my training courses, I always try to get very practical and say, "Look, literally, put something in your calendar with a reminder that in six months' time is going to ping up and say, how are you doing in this area?' You know." Are people asking you questions? Are people challenging you? How many challenges did you have this week? You know, you could actually use technology to remind you to ask yourself that question. Of course, you can get somebody else to do it as well. You can have somebody in the the business that you trust that can be your conscience, if you like. Um, You can even have a conscience group that literally is the purpose of that, is to how are we doing in this area? What are we doing to make sure that um, this doesn't happen because yes you're right um you know it's one of the questions that on our podcasts um, my daughter Celine and I often ask is 
do cult leaders know they are cult leaders? And are they the first members of their own cult? And often the answer is no, they don't know they're cult leaders, but yes, they are the first member of their own cult. Uh, I'm sure some, and of course some do, knowingly set out to mislead. And often that's akin to a con trick, essentially. But I think some of the time these groups start off just... Um, trying to study the Bible or trying to find a better way to make money or to lose weight or to be more mentally healthy. And then the individual in charge starts to believe their own hype and the hubris kicks in. I think that this is something I've noticed in cults and in, I suppose, um, cults that are beginning the very the very embryonic stage of a cult is if you start to notice the individual in charge displaying levels of hubris that are off the scale you know they really believe that they can sort this problem out just by standing in front of everybody and telling them what to think tomorrow you know this is a level of hubris that tells me that there's something not quite right there. So yeah, I think I think that's that's a very practical thing that that um, we can notice and we can get other people to notice. I'm, I'm, I want to come back in on this because there's a topic that I've been sort of toying with and exploring in the background occasionally. I mean, not in any rigorous way, just as something that I'm all over sometimes. And it's the the sort of split between certainty and uncertainty, right? And we can be certain or we can be uncertain about things, and. Uh, my my feeling is that once we achieve a state of certainty, there's a low burden on us. Once we know, we don't have to worry. We know we can park that. We are free. We are liberated. And certainty is a wonderful thing. Once we're certain, we can just go forward and we don't have to, to doubt. We don't have to have any dangerous drug. That is. Oh, it's, it's beautiful, <laughs> isn't it? Right. If you could bottle that up. But to live in live in a space of uncertainty, it means constantly returning, constantly mulling, mulling over, constantly holding on to the fear that you're wrong, constantly knowing that you could be making a mistake and doing all that sort of thinking and emotional burden that comes with uncertainty. And, and a lot of what we're saying is that living in that slight space of uncertainty, which is maybe partly linked to humility, at least for recognition that other ways could be better for you or your organization, living in that space, I think is tiring. I think that's one of the big challenges here. Or, or you know, at least for some people, it's tiring. I know certainly for me, it's, it's tiring. And it's tiring when you care. If you don't care, it's not tiring. If you care about something, living in that uncertainty and trying to navigate it towards the best outcome is hard. But I think if we live in the certain space, then we'll almost certainly get it wrong. Um, though there'll be low cost to us as individuals until the cataclysm is ending. Yeah. Whereas if we live in that space of uncertainty, there'll be a constant cost to us as we mull it, but we'll maybe get to a less bad outcome or better outcomes. So just reflection. I think I think that's super true. I want to tie in something um, that I saw the other day, which is always dangerous because it's a quoting someone who was quoting someone else. So I may have it wrong. But my understanding is that uh, when Obama was talking about decision making and how he dealt with the particular, uh, he was talking about a lot of it, but particularly how he dealt with the emotional labor and the 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 getting comfortable. Uh, one of the big things he talked about was swapping certainties for probabilities, right? So he said, you just have to get comfortable. There is no certainty and you will find it much easier to instead set yourself some kind of probability level you're comfortable with, depending on your appetite for risk and depending on the, the severity of the situation. And he was like making the biggest calls. He was talking about the biggest calls in the world. I mean, and for once, that's not hyperbole, right? He's literally deciding about life and death for multiple people. And 
you know, the stability of the world. And he was talking about, you know, I'm having to make these decisions with a percentage probability that it's going to be the right or the best solution, not the right solution. And um, I think I think that's a really powerful thing to get across to everyone. Like the idea that there isn't certainty, I think, would help all of us deal with change. Um, mm. And I think I, it just really struck me because for the my first reaction, and James you, James, you know me well. You know I like change. Stephen, you've met me. I quite enjoy debate. My first reaction was, I am terrified that the leader of the United States was making massive decisions and wasn't 100% sure. Of course he wasn't 100% sure. And yet that still strikes fear into even me. So yeah. we've got an uphill battle, right, for this idea to, to get comfortable with, yeah. with non-certainty. I think that's really right. I mean, we're probably going a bit, uh, I'm probably taking this even further um, off piece, but um, it, it, it reminds me of when I talk to leaders about change models and how to how to do certain things you know they they'll have um their own favorite you know they'll have a uh, well i i favor john cotter you know myself and um i i i live and die by by that you know and even when you talk about certain myths in learning and development you know like the importance of learning styles and um myers-briggs and all these things that um you know, many HR managers and senior managers have come up with, you know, they've had their own training courses on it and um, they've bought into it hook, line and sinker. They they are certainties for them. And um, any suggestion that actually, well, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's other ways of looking at this situation and um, maybe there's better ways of, of approaching it, you know, completely um anathema you know that's um and it's so bad that you're terrified to actually mention it really yeah and what threatening <laughs> statements those are Absolutely. right like oh my gosh there could be a better way somebody <laughs> said something that stuck in my head a while ago which is you've got to remember that wherever somebody is at a moment in time with their views and opinions you're not you're not dealing with just those views now you're dealing with their whole life leading Absolutely. up to that moment and gosh that's a yeah. tough thing right yeah. and, but again there's there's lots of parallels to religious experiences absolutely and so, yeah. you know it, it almost becomes like a point of doctrine that you know um, i'm going to turn to chapter three paragraph four of you know john cotter's uh famous work or um you know peter's um excellence manual you know and this is uh, and i'm not saying that these things are not useful references, but they're not scripture. Um, yeah. And yet they are treated as They such. literally, you hear them use that language. Oh, that's my Bible. Yeah. That's my leadership yeah. Bible. And you're like, is it? Is it? Is that yeah. really the best yeah. way? Yeah. Um, so maybe we've identified another risk actually here um, by accident, which is that if we want to avoid um, starting our own cultic team if you like or we want to avoid slipping into cultic practices that are generally unhealthy then we have to be careful with our um our being tied to uh works like um you know books and gurus and these these are actually the the language of belief not the language of science and if we if we want to be rational in our management and the way that we lead people we shouldn't be treating it like a religion it's it's actually a scientific approach to the way that we can work better with people that's not to say that we rubbish everything you know it, but it's to say that these are not inspired works that we should um, you know we should treat with that reverence 
Yeah, and and I'd say as well, I, I, my guess is that it's probably good for us to change the way that we do things, you know, bring new people in, try new yeah. processes. And there's always a cost to the new, right? There is always a cost of picking your pens up, rethinking, doing it. But, you know, it keeps you fresh and it, it eliminates some of that risk of being in that trap of certainty. And, and you know, each new time we do something in a new way, we bring in a new voice, which gives us some of that freshness and that voice to to our organization. Um. I'm going to move us on a little bit because we've yep. kind of drifted into something else anyway. So I think it would be helpful. And I want to yep. ask you about something related to employee voice, which is employee silence. Now, there are two, uh, broadly, there's kind of, well, there's loads of types of employee silence, but broadly, they fall into two groups, intentional and unintentional. Um, there's multiple types in each of those, but I just want to start with intentional and unintentional. I think unintentional, largely, we've covered quite a lot of um, ground in terms of what people can do to avoid unintentional silence and, um, or at least a little bit, that's my reflection. Um, But I think intentional silence, I think is super interesting because I think there's a couple of different things in this, right? One is, are you do why, what's your intention, right? <laughs> is your intention because you actually think you're doing everyone a favor because you're like, oh, this conversation's gone on forever. Let's just stop it or let's not. Is it intentional because it's going to serve you well or because you're fearful of something changing or because it's a power move? So we've all worked with administrators, IT experts, people in support services who are known to withhold useful and helpful information um, because it allows them to, I mean, the classic I know is that I I knew an IT team that deliberately withheld how long it took them to take tasks so that people would never push them to do them any quicker. So they'd be like, oh, it takes me 20 minutes, but I don't want people to know that because I've got 250 of them. And if I tell them it's 20 minutes, they'll want to know why they aren't the next 20 minutes versus there's an order, right? So there's there's a reason or intentional. So I guess the the question I want to challenge you is like, how important is it um, and what's the role of people being silent? And, you know, how how can we think about what their intention is and, you know, whether their intention is ultimately to support the existing structures if those structures are problematic? in organizations you know we've we've all sat in the room and seen seen people be quiet about i don't know resource distribution and leadership level because <laughs> they're like well if i stay quiet when it comes to my bit i'm going to get what i need this is a really interesting question and i think i i'm gonna like throw a bit of a spanner in the works right away as a little side thought because i think it's interesting I, I think when we think about use of voice and not use of voice those are only two aspects of the ways that we communicate. So I think we don't harness or use broader means of communication, which I think is a really interesting thing. So I think even in this conversation, we're limiting within some of the means of communication that we have very much in that verbal space and very much within the, the structure of the use of voice. So I think, I don't know what it is, but but I believe there's something that's probably really fantastic that's even broader than use of voice and use of silence when looking at gaining insights from people around us. I, so I just wanted to, to chuck that out there. Um, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a phrase, um, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? I mean, that's kind of where we're going with this. What is it that we want people to do in these, these situations? And why might people be speaking the truth um, and nothing but the truth, but not the whole truth? Or why might they be speaking nothing but the truth, but, you know, whatever, uh, you know, those different permutations that exist within there. Um, 
I think that there, again, are probably different contexts where people communicate in different ways. And I think it's probably, to some extent, a product of their expectations and beliefs within the organization. So I think that a lot of it is is sort of cultural within there. I think there are many reasons why people could choose not to speak the whole truth or not to speak nothing but the truth or or to to absent themselves from the conversation um, entirely. And I I think that there can be um, noble positive reasons for that, or I think that there could be duplicitous reasons for that in all instances. And I think there are shades of gray between that. I think your example there was a bit of a shade of gray. Um, I can understand both sides of that argument. My gut feeling is that generally we should um, use our voice, but I, I, I would also say that I think that in many organizations, there would be a benefit from scaling use of voice inversely to sort of positional power within an organization. Something that I find myself trying to do at times is to not use my voice. And it's not because I don't think I have things to say, but I'm conscious that in some conversations where I use my voice, I can create a a sort of gravitational anchor field around the things that I've said. And that can be a really sort of poisonous thing to bring in. And so, so intentionally trying to not use that voice for me in those circumstances can be a really good thing. But those are in the domains where maybe I know more or I'm more assured or I bring my privilege to a conversation in a way that can be inhibiting for others. Where that's the case, I think I should intentionally try and step away. However, when I'm in a situation where I'm less confident, where I'm less um, positionally powerful, where, where I'm maybe less privileged from those in the room, then it would be beneficial for me to speak up more. So those are kind of my some of my thoughts on that. Stephen, I don't know if you've got any thoughts or reflections having heard that. Yeah, I suppose my, my reflections are on thinking about the uh, the team members maybe who um, sit there. Um, I mean, in my in my mind, I've got I've got the room where you know you're asking for people to give their opinions or suggestions about something um and you have various people in the room who are purposely not giving voice to what they think and i'm thinking why are they doing that so i I can i can imagine those situations you have all sorts of motivations um what's the point nobody ever listens to me um i'm not saying anything because if I do, I get stuck with the job. Um, it's not my job, actually. I don't get paid to make these decisions. Um, so these are all fairly negative reasons not to give voice. But I guess there also could be um, an an assumption that actually no one wants you to say something either. You know, so there's a there's an unspoken truth that. It's a bit like at the end of a, a lecture when you say, right, has anybody got any questions? No? Good. So what are you telling the group when you say no good? You're saying that that is a condition I like. Next time we do a lecture, I want the same again, please. So we, we can be sending messages to our team, can't we, that we actually don't want to to have opinions. So I think there's all sorts of reasons Um why people might not want to or what might not share voice. Um, in a cult, of course, that is very much the environment. It's communicated to you that, you know, it's not really your role. Um, in fact, it's not your role at all. Your role is to do what you're told. Um, and obedience is the message that you're that you're getting from 
uh, from the leadership uh, that, that you do what you're told and you do it obediently without question. And in fact, um, in the group that I was a member of, that was a, a regular lesson that you'd have. You'd have um, lessons from the Bible where you'd see Bible characters being told to do something. And if they didn't do what they were told and obedient, they'd die a horrible death. Um, if they did what they were told, they were given lots of advantages and uh, you know they were faithful so this this message is constantly given so i guess that's uh, that's unlikely to be quite so explicit in a workplace but it could be implicit it could be implied actually we don't really want you to say what you think we want you we want to go through the motions as if we do but we don't really so you said there's lots in there but this you said one thing that's really kicked my my brain into gear um around a couple of these things and it's around whose role is it right and what is your role and I think there is something really interesting James knows I'm about to probably go on a topic that I've been wanging on about for ages <laughs> which is that I think we're really bad generally at the moment in most organizations that I work with at explicitly designing roles and defining what people's jobs are particularly when you get into management and leadership right and you just struck me. I, so I was visualizing as you were talking, uh, Stephen, I had I had literally visualized a, um, well, I'll be honest, a pretty rubbishy premiere in meeting room where I have sat in leadership, uh, remote leadership uh, teams that are spread across the country and we've come together for a leadership meeting and I've watched people stay silent. Now, I could argue they were staying silent um, because it was in their interest or because they thought it was the right thing. I'm not sure. Either way, I absolutely know that when I have worked one-to-one -one with senior leaders in organizations who aren't the CEO, they have not explicitly seen it as their job to speak up and against colleagues' work, right? So they see it as their job to look after their patch and they work in silos and their job to answer to the CEO and help the CEO understand their bit but they don't necessarily recognize their job as part of the leadership of an organization, right? So they're like, well, I can stay silent because Dave's patch over there is nothing to do with me and Alia's patch over there is nothing to do with me and I'm just going to be a cheerleader. And actually, I think my job is to support them and they think support means cheerlead, right? Rather than, Dave, you might, <laughs> you might want... I'm not sure that's going to work because it's not going to work the way we work together as teams, but also I'm just not sure it's going to work. And I think that's where I get really interested in James's point right at the beginning about, is it my area of expertise? Well, no. And at middle management level, that doesn't necessarily, therefore that's probably not your issue. But once you get up to senior points in the organization, you still kind of need someone to be speaking up in the same way boards do. And so I, I guess where I'm going with all of this is how do we explicitly make speaking up and where silence should and shouldn't sit as part of someone's role and how do we how do, how can organizations not again drift into this place where everyone isn't is silent but they're doing it even for the best of reasons because they're like oh this is my job yeah I, I i guess the obvious answer is to be explicit about it you know so it is it is written into your job description it is um talked about on your whatever reviews that you whatever mechanism you choose to to use uh for your review processes um you're asked about it by your manager it's expected 
that you will um, have those things to say. And it's it's also, I always think that it's, in many respects, it's more important to prepare the other person for that experience. So, so I do a lot of training in assertiveness. Um, so how managers need to be assertive. And for assertive, of course, I don't mean aggressive. I mean assertive. And, you know, I, you know this, is, this is what I would like and I, I have a, a, something I'd like from this situation and this is what it is and so on. Those sorts of simple techniques, I suppose. I tend to often work with first-line managers in these situations. But I, I'm, I think almost more important than training those managers how to assertively say, I need you to get me that report by three o'clock this afternoon. Thank you very much. Is training the person at the other end of that conversation to understand what's just been said to you and why it's been said that way. Um, so after, after somebody goes on one of my courses, they go back to their workplace and all of a sudden this monster has arrived, you know, this person who suddenly speaks in a different way than they used to do. And it can be actually quite difficult for the workforce to, for the team to understand what's just happened. What have they done to my, my manager, you know? Um, so a little bit of, I always say to the the managers who go on my courses, speak to your teams, explain to them what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's not secret. So actually preparing the other person. So I'm, I'm applying that to your question, Jane, about um, how you might get people to make a comment like, uh, well, actually, I don't think that'll work in your area because I tried that and it didn't actually work for me or, or I'm not sure that you have the right demographics in your region to make that work. If people are not prepared for that type of conversation, then that's going to be an uncomfortable moment. But if they are prepared for that conversation, that's fine. Everybody knows that's the sort of conversation to expect. So maybe it's about setting up those expectations. Yeah, I think that's nice. I, as you were speaking um, throughout this, the phrase that's kind of come up in my mind to think about some of this more broadly is beneficial friction. I think we, we want to bring in some of this, this challenge and that increased um, milling of ideas and thoughts to make sure that what we produce is, is really the best. And, you know, it's about measuring twice and cutting once and, and some of those types of things. And it's very hard for us to, to feel that it's okay to spend time on that activity as opposed to rushing towards the end, right? I mean, you know, that, that very much isn't moving fast and breaking things. I mean, that's not a cool thing to do, is it? We don't want to be, you know, thinking and reflecting and, and not disrupting and, and narrowing down on a, on a good outcome and doing a little bit less haste and, and more speed in it, which is hard. Um, I like a lot, lot of what you said, though, Stephen. And I think there's, for me, there's a piece around shaping the pull of this as opposed to the push. So how can we all take on some accountability, not to challenge, but to invite challenge? How can we shape it into our responsibilities to be that inviter? How can we say that we should, um, you know, build into our processes an opportunity where we invite people? How do we build into our one-to-ones a moment where we explicitly invite? How do we deal with the silence that follows? How do we shape on, um, you know, more broadly say, like our, our team meetings and our away days and, and our project implementation plans or whatever it is that we have? How do we build into those aspects of our work for space to invite 
this as well. Yeah, um, I've I've only just thought of this, so I haven't um, sort of looked up the uh, the reference. So I'll try and find it. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but there was a, a piece of research that I think was fairly cutting edge, but it was talking about mental models, and the idea was whether if you created a mental model of the way that a meeting should be, let's say, or a uh, any sort of interaction, you know, you, basically you all agree that this is the way that this thing happens. So thinking about, I suppose, the way we might construct what we expect a certain situation to be like. If everybody can understand the same or have a view of the same mental model about this is the way that this type of thing works then um, this piece of research found that actually they were better at coming to decisions and ultimately implementing those decisions Um, I think something there so you know sometimes it is about okay let's together structure what we think this type of interaction should be like and we all share that so we have the same expectations of what goes on in one of these things in very simple terms in manufacturing we we do something sometimes called a cell review which is just a very short 10-15 minute meeting every morning or every beginning of shift in front of a whiteboard looking at the um the numbers that the green numbers we we ignore, the red numbers we talk about, and there's a very specific set of rules around how that meeting goes. Um, and once you learn it, you learn it. So you you completely expect your manager or the person leading that cell review. You completely expect them to say to you, "Okay, so this number was red yesterday. What happened there? What was the reason for that?" Um, now, if you weren't prepared for that question or you didn't know that sort of thing was going to happen, you might fluff your lines. You know, you might be a bit uncomfortable about that, but you're not because you know it's expected that's what's going to happen. And you answer it in a very matter of fact way and you take all the emotion out of it in that respect. So that's just one example of a structured prearranged meeting that everybody has the same mental model of. So maybe it's about creating a um, a mental model for those sorts of interactions. I, I think that's lovely, and, and that's something similarly that I, I, I've used in sort of financial services teams to to, to think about their you know procedural outputs, um, particularly in more production based teams. As, as you were speaking, I, I couldn't help but drift back a little bit to certainty and uncertainty and all of those types of things. I, I, I often feel that some of the challenge around the challenge around challenge, I guess some of the reasons we found it hard to be challenged and to invite this is that we often find it hard to separate ourselves from what it is that we're sharing others. So there's a personal aspect to it. But also, I think quite often we we offer things up as a solution or we offer things up as a final product or a completed thing. And if we can step back into that space of ambiguity and say, what I'm giving at pretty much all situations is what I think is the best thing that we have right now as a moment, and maybe it's good enough, maybe it isn't, but what I'm giving isn't a completed final thing. It is where we are now, and you can help me make this better. So if we're always living in that incomplete, ambiguous space where there is space for improvement, and we generally invite others to complete that journey with us, then I think it's it makes it easier to, to ask for that and invite. And I think there's something in that framing, which is, again, difficult to do, but I think overlaps with, with what you've said there, Stephen. Brilliant. So I'm super conscious that uh, 
we have covered quite a lot of ground and also that we are probably running out of time. So I thought the best thing to do maybe is to just get a sense of whether um, having had this conversation, either of you have got any sort of final reflections on the topic of, you know, voice, silence and how we can use those concepts to avoid this this feared drift that we keep talking about into the world of highly hierarchical, directional, and ultimately almost high control organizations. Hmm. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll start. I think um, there's just a couple of things I'd like to say. I suppose, first of all, you, you did kind of allude to this earlier, Jane, around some of what we know about psychology. And it, it got me thinking about a piece that I've just recently written around cults, actually, which is the famous to me i guess to you as well um desi and ryan's um self-determination theory and the, the the fact that human beings have these three intrinsic psychological needs which are this sense of autonomy sense of competence and a sense or a feeling of relatedness or belonging and i think if you think about what we've been talking about today uh voice is such an important element to all three of those, certainly the first two, I think, um, but possibly all three as well. You know, the feeling that I I have something to contribute and that my view has some value and importance. That that is so important. Cults um, prevent that or, or stop that happening. So we want to avoid slipping into a high control type of situation where people are feeling coerced and not not you know, fulfilling their potential, then, then that's an area to, to, to pay attention to, I think. So that, that's, that's one of the things. And I think the other thing I wanted to say is that I feel like today we've been able to identify some real um, practical things that maybe we found a bit more difficult on some of the other discussions. There are some practical, tangible things that we can do, like, um, you know, set up reminders to ask ourselves about how well we're listening to other people and encouraging other people to have a say, creating mental models of, of interaction so that everybody knows what's expected and what's going to happen in these situations. And I can't remember all of them, but I think we've, we've talked about some quite tangible elements to avoid slipping or drifting into these um, highly controlled environments, which we think are less effective. Yeah, that's great. And, and I think I'll sort of build or, or sort of move tangentially to that. And one of the things that we speak about a lot that I think is true here, as it is in many places, is the importance of trying to be intentional in doing this. I think it's one of those areas, if we just drift, then we can drift into places that are unhelpful for us or our organizations. So there is something about intentionality, but we know that being intentional all the time is like impossible, right? Otherwise, we would all be very different people, I guess. So sometimes we are on autopilot. So I think it's important to remember that we are all a little bit fallible and it's hard to do that, but we've got tools to help us through that, you know, like some of the mental models that, that Stephen referenced. But also we're not alone in trying to create these environments in our organizations or in our in our lives. So we can do things like get others to help us, use the tools that we have. We can modify our processes. We can set rules that we operate in. We can do checkpoints and time points. We can build in all these lovely guide rails around us to stop us clearing off course if we end up, you know, at risk of running somewhere that we don't want to be. Hmm. What about you, Jane? Oh, there's so much. Um, firstly, I'd just like to say thank you for indulging me in this conversation because um, I think 
voice and silence are really interesting and the way they link. And I really love what both of you just said about the practicalities and this intentionality. But I guess for me, the biggest reflection on this conversation is yet again comes back for me, surprise, surprise, to power and how silence and voice somehow must be a mediator or moderator of power. Like that if it's done right and if it's created right, then this dilution of power um, prevents can prevent that drift. And I think um, I think that's really the more practical uh, that we can build those measures against centralized power or unitary power, maybe more not centralized, um, the better chance we've got of avoiding it, right? And the better chance we've got of organizations that have an open dialogue amongst all their different sections, layers, et cetera, was my reflection. Hmm. Uh, and my, I suppose my my final personal final word is, uh, or final thought is, um, embrace uncertainty, um, which I think is is you know a nice way to uh, maybe to end it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, um, both of you. I really enjoyed our little chat today for our third episode of this discussion. Uh, we've got one more to come, haven't we? Uh, that we've planned in. Uh, which was one that you're going to look at, James. What what was that? Can you remember? Yeah, we're going to be talking about purpose, really the, the role of purpose in yeah. our lives and in organizations and in cultic organizations. Brilliant. Look forward to that. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.